is Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU. I'm Tana Weingartner filling in for Lucy May. Cincinnati residents got an opportunity this week to ask questions and voice concerns about Mayor Aftab Puraval's proposed overhaul of the city's zoning code. Today on the News Review, we're going to talk about what some of them had to say. Plus, residents in Covington say they're getting an earful from the other side of the river. Their beef with a concert venue. And we'll also learn about a man who's telling local Catholics how to fight the Archdiocese of Cincinnati's Beacons of Light plan to consolidate parishes. Kicking us off today is WVXU local government reporter Becca Costello. She joins us in this recorded interview. Welcome, Becca. Hi, Tana. (laughs) Mayor Pierval has proposed a plan called Connected Communities. What would it do? So the short version is that it will change a lot of the rules for zoning. And zoning, of course, are the detailed regulations about what you can build and where in the city. And a good history lesson, as a reminder, is a lot of zoning was established decades ago. It was a way to intentionally segregate neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Um, those effects are largely still in place today. Cincinnati is a very segregated city. So connected communities would relax regulation about buildings. It's mostly aimed at allowing more housing. It's focused on these major corridors. So eventually Metro will have bus rapid transit service on Hamilton Avenue and Reading Road. So it includes those major corridors plus a half mile buffer on either side. So that's about a 10 minute walk thinking about it that way. Other major corridors like Glenway, Harrison, Madison Road, that's where Metro already has 24-7 service. So there's no buffer here. It's just on the street itself. And then neighborhood business districts, plus a quarter mile buffer on either side. That's about a five minute walk. So in those identified areas, you'll be able to build housing with up to four units. Now, that's even if the current zoning is for single family only. So it will affect a lot of single family only area. There are also rules about how many units you can put on a single lot for like a a multifamily apartment building. So this plan would eliminate those rules in most of the areas we just talked about. Um, It is a little bit more detailed depending on what what we're talking about. And then lastly, it also reduces or eliminates the number of parking spaces that are required for new construction. And that's for both residential and commercial buildings. So you're talking a lot about zoning. That's Probably the most controversial topic at City Council. Definitely. (laughs) What was, there was a public meeting this week. What kind of feedback did they hear? There were lots of questions, also a lot of concerns, unsurprisingly. Um, I talked to Clifton resident Steve Slack. He says he owns and lives in a single family home in one of these areas that would allow duplex, triplex, and quad homes under these changes. So currently single family, but would get some limited multifamily. Here's what he told me. I think they're just taking too big of a bite out of the problem they're trying to solve. And there are empty spaces around near the downtown and so forth that could be, de- there's there's areas that could be developed here for sure. It needs, it needs development. But just to say that every neighborhood along these corridors, eliminating the single family zoning, I mean, the zoning is what protects our neighborhoods. It protects families. It protects our housing values. So other than housing value, you know, what kind of protection are you worried about losing with these changes? Well, when you live in a neighborhood, when you know your neighbors and you raise your kids there and the kids know each other and you've got a little a little yard and maybe if you're lucky to have a garage, you've got space to raise a family. And it's nice. Single family. It's called family. Single family. Apartment dwellers. You can have families in apartments. But I think the quality of life in a house is ideal and what most people would probably want. 
So just to clarify, the plan wouldn't get rid of all single-family zoning. Okay. The city would still have single-family zones. But more than a third of what's currently zoned as single-family would be changed to allow housing with up to four units. So basically, officials are kind of targeting what they call middle housing. So it's not a, a you know 100-unit apartment building. It's not a single-family home. It's something in between. Gotcha. All right. So lots of the city would still only allow single family homes. That's what you just said. What other things did you hear from residents about other concerns they have? So I also talked to Jacob Knight and Garland Waleko. They live in Evanston, and they say they've gotten a lot more involved in local government lately because there's a, a planned development, a housing development in their neighborhood, and they're against that development, and they say it's been kind of frustrating to go through this community engagement process for this development and see it get approval despite some of this really vocal community opposition. So uh, here's Jacob first, and then we'll hear from Garland. So it is a concern if they're proposing, you know, increased density and fewer restrictions that don't have to go through a public process or a community council um, to see if there is community buy-in for whatever is proposed. So that's one of my concerns, I suppose. So that could include things like height and density, because those are things that often have to get a hearing for a variance. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. And the number of parking spots, you know, like I don't like parking lots, but also where are all these people going to park? It's just a realistic question. All right. Let me jump in here, Becca. We heard two terms there, density and height. What do those mean in relation to zoning and how would connected communities change them? Yeah, we love getting real wonky like this. <laughs> you hear these a lot of these terms that are kind of zoning terms that you yeah. don't normally use in an everyday no. conversation. So <laughs> density basically means the number of individual housing units that are allowed on one lot. So this is like an apartment building, a multifamily mm -hmm. development. Okay. Um, and so, you know, you might have space for a lot of studios, but because of the unit requirements and the, the density requirements, you can only build a certain number of units. It's often capped in a way that makes it too expensive to build, because if you think about it, developers need to be making enough rental income to cover their expenses to operate and manage the building. And if they can have 12 units, uh, they can bring in that amount of rent. Let's say they're only allowed to have six units, and so they can't charge enough to uh, bring in the amount of money they need to manage it. Connected communities would eliminate density restrictions in neighborhood business districts, and it would also allow uh, eliminate density restrictions along major corridors plus that half-mile radius we talked about. Now, it's really important to note that this is totally separate from square footage requirements in mm. the building code. So we're talking about zoning code here. It does not do anything to building code. That means okay. if there's a minimum size for every bedroom, that is still in place. So I think a concern that people often have is we're going to build almost tenement style sure, um, yeah. um, housing. And that's not what would happen necessarily. Okay. So going back to height, um, so obviously that one's a little bit more straightforward. <laughs> Buildings can only be a certain height. It's different depending on where you are in the city and, and what type of zoning it is. The only change to height restrictions that Connected Communities has right now is that a building along a major corridor, and that can only be on the block face, which means it is literally on the sidewalk, on the street, not further back on the block. Those can get a one-story height bonus, so they can be one story higher than the current requirements. Now, a very important exception in that case is if it's in that area, but it's a single family zone, no height bonus there. Hmm. So they are not able to get the one story height bonus. That's kind of one way that the single family zones in these areas are carved out. Gosh, I'm glad that you are on top of this. <laughs> 
Um, so it sounds like a lot of folks are either wary of these changes. Some have just like flat out decided they are opposed already. Does anybody support the plan? There certainly is support. Um, and, and it's the kind of thing where you typically hear from the opposition at meetings like mm-hmm, this, sure. unsurprisingly. Um, but there uh, has been there's been some uh, some early pushback. But I have heard some criticism that the plan doesn't go far enough to oh. reform zoning. So Minneapolis, for example, about five years ago, abolished single family zoning altogether. Now, that doesn't mean that they were allowing 100 unit apartment buildings next to a single family <laughs> home, but some something similar where they're allowing that middle housing and no single family zoning. Connected Communities doesn't do that. Um, Cincinnati officials are saying this plan is based on some really early resident input, and they knew that that was not going to fly here in Cincinnati, and so they decided to make it a little more narrow. Um, At the meeting in Bond Hill this week, I talked to David Emery. He came from North Avondale, and he said he came to the meeting specifically to support Connected Communities, and he wanted to counter some of the opposition he was already seeing to it on social media. But at the same time, he told me he understands why some people don't want to see these changes. The notion of middle housing is not something that people really can conceive of. They, We've been so conditioned to thinking that you either live and rent in an apartment or you go and you get a single family house. And then we have this very kind of a restricted idea of what a, a single family home looks like, when in reality, a single family home can be all kinds of things other than simply a stand freestanding building sitting on a quarter or half acre or more lot. And the reality is, is we've, we're finding that that's not working for everybody. And also it's not respect respecting the diversity of lifestyles and choices that people need. Um, and then lastly, it's also just not um, environmentally sustainable. And I don't think people are getting that connection to understand that everyone can't live exactly the same way on a quarter or half acre lot in perpetuity, while also respecting the realities of climate change and our impacts on the environment. So David kind of hit on a couple of things that officials are also really kind of pushing for this, that it's it's not necessarily just about housing affordability, although that is pushing a lot of this. It's about desegregation. It's about climate change. It's about some of these other things. And and part of the goal is to create um, the, the term that's usually used as a more walkable community, but it's really more pedestrian friendly, which would include folks who are using wheelchairs or other mobility aids, um, any, anybody not in a car, basically. Um, and that that's what research is showing uh, has a better effect on the environment, has a better effect on the economy. It's something that like encourages folks to stay local and eat, shop, do their entertainment all in in kind of their immediate area. So those are some of the the reasons, obviously, the pushback is already there. It's (laughs) going to be a long conversation, but um, city officials are are already planning to have more of that conversation in some upcoming events. Okay, so tell us a little bit more about the timeline for that um, and also how can, if they can, how can people give feedback? Yeah, so they're really pushing that this is uh, not finalized in any way. They haven't written an ordinance yet. That is by design. Um, So officials are saying they want as much public feedback as possible so that they can incorporate that into whatever the first version of the ordinance is. So the next public meeting is actually next week. It's on Wednesday, February 28th at the Price Hill Rec Center. That's from 6 to 8 in the evening. There's a virtual public meeting, so similar format, but just virtual for anyone who that um, can attend. That's on March 12th. There's also a a, a kind of more robust version of an in-person meeting at the housing summit will be Saturday, March 23rd at the Duke Energy Convention Center. That's like from the morning to early afternoon. So a little bit more time to kind of go in more depth. 
The city is also um, getting feedback on several surveys online. You can find a link to that at WVXU.org. So basically the plan is to take all that feedback, write an ordinance, release some kind, uh, some that version of an ordinance sometime in April, and then there'll be a vote in the Planning Commission. If it passes there, then they expect it to be at council for a vote by the end of June. All right. And Becca will be tracking all of that for you on our website and on our air. I've been talking with WVXU local government reporter Becca Costello. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Tana. Neighbors in Covington are seeking peace and quiet since a music venue moved in across the river. They claim the live performances have pelted them with sound. Back and forth negotiations over the volume have been escalating, but are they going anywhere? Cincinnati Inquirer Enterprise and Watchdog reporter Patricia Gallagher Newberry is here to explain in this recorded interview. Thanks so much for being here. Happy to be with you. All right, Patty, the venue we're talking about opened at Smale Riverfront Park in Cincinnati in 2021. Tell us a little bit about it and what neighbors in Covington told you. The venue sits next to the Brady Center down on Maring Way. It's called the Icon Festival Stage. Um, When you look at it, you think it might be a temporary stage. It it looks like a a high school theater stage in some respects. Uh, Sits there uh, facing the river. Um, And from the very beginning, folks in Covington could hear the concerts that were staged at the Icon Festival Stage. And they didn't like the level of noise and the uh, length of noise that was coming across the water to their homes. Okay. And just to be clear, this is the outdoor stage that's there at the venue. Correct. This is the outdoor stage. So it is uh, part of the Brady Complex, if you will, and managed by the same outfit as the Brady Complex. Um, But it is the outdoor stage. Yes. Okay. And so that outfit that manages it that you just mentioned is Music and Event Management, Inc. It's a bit of a wing of the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra. What's been their response? They responded when I reached out with a list of fixes that they've made. They have um, reduced the sound levels, they said. They have hired people to monitor the sound levels. They say they are not breaking any uh, laws in terms of noise um, noise ordinances. Um, they've also reduced the number of outdoor concerts by two or three, at least they did in the summer of twenty two and 23. Um, So they say that they have responded to the neighbors complaining about the noise and uh, that they're doing their part to, um, you know, be good neighbors. Okay. But what do the folks in Covington say about that? I mean, I understand they've hired a sound expert as well. They have. um, And the Covington folks basically say it's not enough, Mm -hmm. that it's still too loud that, I mean, kind of their chief complaints are the level of sound, which they say does, in fact, um, break ordinances as to sound levels, both in Covington and Cincinnati. These are residential sound levels. Um, they also say potentially uh, that the the sound is breaking um, other kinds of laws having to do with public nuisance. Um, they, uh, they are particularly aggrieved that... Um, a lot of the sound that's coming across includes obscenities, um, mm. not just the lyrics themselves, but performers, you know, saying things to their audiences, which apparently includes the F word. Um, Please don't and say that last- on my hair, Patty. <laughs> <laughs> lastly, um, that the, the sound will start uh, 
in the afternoon and carry through all the way to 11 o'clock, which is kind of the curfew for the performances, because the, the performers come and they do sound checks and they do run throughs and they do rehearsals. So it can, you know, the, the sound can really carry on for uh, uh, almost a full, you know, from, from midday on till dark, past dark. Gotcha. That sound expert that they hired, did he, did they come up with anything additional? Well, uh, the sound expert that they hired is the person who compiled a sample tape, if you will, of the performers who were offering the choice um, F-bombs, <laughs> uh, which they then sent to the folks um, with the CSO. The, that's the, okay. uh, the uh, organization. So, Gotcha. All right. Very good. Uh, so why, <laughs> why when they built this outdoor stage... Um, they decided to point it toward the Ohio River, right? Like this, that's kind of the the problem here. It is. There's many options of the way that stage could have been situated, right? It could have been pointed toward downtown Cincinnati. It could have been pointed more to Newport. It could have been, you know, swapped around completely and went the other direction on the the river. You know, as to why it points at, at Covington, I was not able to determine that. Mm. I just know. Um, at the point at which the design was um, accepted by the city of Cincinnati, um, the the drawing sh showed it full on facing Covington, and that's where it has remained ever since. Okay, and the there's a similar venue in Newport. Does it not shoot its sound back across? Is, it, is are we not having sound wars? Uh, no, for a couple of reasons. First of all, that stage um, faces the Campbell County Courthouse. So it faces away from Covington. Um, apparently, that venue also has some technology that softens sound um, built in. Uh, and then thirdly, and, and I didn't get into this in what I wrote about, but I'm told that when sound travels over water, it, it is not at all muted. It just continues at the same level from the point of origin versus if you... Um, uh, you know, sound that's going into a building, into a landmass uh, is going to be absorbed. You know, some of the sound is going to be absorbed by those structures, um, by those hard surfaces versus water. I don't know that I don't know the science on that, to tell you the truth, Tana. So <laughs> but but that's what I was told, that water does not mute and absorb any of the sound it comes over full force yep i was just going to say science all right <laughs> city leaders are involved covington's mayor has weighed in cincinnati's city manager has weighed in how are they addressing the issue well um i thought it was somewhat unusual that uh, joe meyer the covington mayor and the commissioners for the what's called the the covington city commission um are uh, are involved in this, but apparently the residents in Covington brought their concerns directly to their political leaders, and the political leaders, you know, uh, have have advocated for their residents there along the riverfront. Um, they have put their names on letters. They have asked for and had some meetings with the you know the right players here. Uh, in terms of on the Cincinnati side, um, less reaction. <laughs> First of all, the most recent letter from Mayor Joe Meyer and from the uh, the commissioners went out in January and specifically asked for a meeting like, hey, friends, let's get to the bottom of this. What are the solutions? Can we meet with you? They've had no um, reaction directly from that letter. Uh, there is no meeting on the calendar. Um, in terms of the city of Cincinnati, I got back 
a statement uh, from the, the city manager's office essentially saying we are aware of uh, Covington folks' concerns and we believe that CSO is addressing them. And that was kind of the start and finish of that. I did reach out to um, members of city council uh, and our mayor and uh, in Cincinnati, and I got zero response um, to that, uh -huh. to, to my request for comment. Okay. What about um, Hamilton County commissioners or the Cincinnati Parks Department? Because they're all in, kind of involved in the banks too, right? So anything they from are, them? Right. Right. So Parks folks essentially said, we, uh, we appreciate having the icon stage. We think it's a good amenity in the parks there, the Smale Park system there. Uh, but it's the city of Cincinnati who has the contract with what's called MEMI, you know, the part of the CSO that that runs it. So really, any any questions should be directed to them. So, of course, I, you know, that's where I got the <laughs> statement from the MEMI folks. Uh, the county people likewise said this is a CSO question. It's not a county question. Uh, the county is somewhat involved because they own the land under the um the Black Music Hall of Fame, Walk right. of Fame, sorry. Um, so Which they don't have right a direct next to role. this facility. Yeah, it's right next to, right? There's these three lots all together. The county has the uh the walk of the the hall of the walk of fame, is that what's called walk of fame? Yeah. And then the the city is um, you know, involved in the other two. They're officially considered part of uh the Smale property. So it gets a little messy. Who should actually take care of this issue? Who right. should respond to these complaints? Uh, they all have a little bit of a, a stake in it, but essentially say, um, you know, we've contracted with Memi. They're the ones who book the acts. They're the ones who work with the artists. They're the ones who, you know, have uh, the ability to um, install the technology to mitigate noise. Um, and so it's really on them. Okay. Well, what changes have um, music and event management and the CSO made, if any? Yeah, they have, um, you know, as I noted, they have uh, hired sound engineers. They have uh, installed this t 11 p.m. curfew for the end of music. Um, they say they are not violating uh, any sound ordinances, that they're keeping the levels at acceptable levels. They say they have reduced the schedule, meaning they have fewer bookings. So those are the things they've said they've they've done in response to the noise complaints. Okay, and so um, folks in Covington say not good enough. What are they proposing? Well, uh, the lawyer who is um, been kind of out front talking about this says a lawsuit is possible um, if we can't get some resolution. I don't know what that lawsuit might look like um, and what kind of remedy might be um, uh, sought, but a lawsuit you know has been talked about. Um, that same lawyer says he'd like to have the stage rotated um, 180 deg degrees and have a point downtown. Oh. Um, and, you know, if you look again, if you look at that stage, it does look as though it's not a permanent stage. Um, now, no, the, the Memi people haven't said that, um, that it is it, it could be rotated, but it it, it doesn't look to be it, it's not set in concrete. It's not encased in a big building. Right. It's just a stage on on legs. Um, and so the Covington people say rotate it. Um, one of the other Covington folks involved in this said that, you know, they'd like to continue talking with the city of Cincinnati, with Parks, with Memi, 
um, and have a sound expert actually come into the into the conversation and say, here are other things you could do. Here's technologies you could use. Um, here's here's ways that might um, you know be acceptable to all. So we'll see if anybody wants to continue the conversation. Uh, the Covington folks are ready, and the Cincinnati people um, on the Cincinnati side, it seems as though uh, they feel as though they've done enough. All right. Well, we'll have to hear how things shake out. I've been talking with <laughs> Cincinnati Inquirer Enterprise and Watchdog reporter Patricia Gallagher Newberry. Thank you so much for your time today. Happy to be with you. Up next, Beacons of Light has led to pushback against the Cincinnati Archdiocese. Could it lead to an appeal? This is Cincinnati Edition. This is Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU. I'm Marianne Zalesnik filling in for Lucy May. Church membership is declining nationwide, and that is one of the reasons the Archdiocese of Cincinnati has cited for Beacons of Light. It's an initiative to consolidate hundreds of Catholic parishes. But opposition to the effort has grown among parishioners. WCPO I-Team reporters Paula Christian and Dan Monk took a closer look at how some advocates elsewhere in the state are appealing these mergers. They'll join me now in this recorded interview. Welcome, Paula and Dan. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So let's talk a little bit about Beacons of Light. Can you give us some specifics as to what it means here in Greater Cincinnati? Well, it means that parishes are being combined in what they call parish families. 208 parishes throughout the 19-county archdiocese are being combined into 57 parish families, some of which have one uh, parish, some of which have five or more and that is uh, the expectation is that over time uh, parishes will combine and over time we'll have fewer churches, fewer parishes, fewer schools. And so as this plan is being implemented and it has been going on for a little while now, um, what has the reaction been from parishioners about the, the changes that are being made? Well, the parishioners in the northern part of the archdiocese, up near Sydney, north of Dayton, have been very vocal in their opposition. Um, they are forming opposition groups, websites. Um, there's a gentleman that took the job of procurator for the entire archdiocese, which means he's the chief advocate for, for all parishioners um, who want to appeal uh, decrees for mergers and closures. So um, it is it is spreading down to the southwest part of the archdiocese somewhat, um, but it is definitely accelerating, the opposition is. Well, let's talk about what rights parishioners have in all of this. I mean, the archdiocese is the, the group and the organization in charge. What kind of rights do parishioners have? Well, that was one of the surprising things about our research. I didn't realize before this uh, started that um, that parishioners actually do have a right to appeal uh, decrees, uh, decisions by the archdiocese uh, chancery uh, to merge a parish and to what they call relegate a parish, which means uh, to prepare it for non-Catholic use. That means it can be sold or it can be demolished and um these decisions happen uh, under canon law. They have to uh, identify a just cause for the decisions they're making. And then parishioners have the ability to appeal if they can find a canon lawyer to take their 
case. And you've been talking to uh, a person named Mark Pettis. Tell us about him and how he is involved in all of this. Well, Mark um, is retired. He worked in a foundry for his entire career, and he um, he attends a church in McCartysville, Ohio, and there was a lot of opposition there. They formed a group, um, and he uh, decided to take the very difficult job of being procurator for the entire archdiocese. He's teamed up with a canon lawyer, Philip Gray, who is working with him to kind of get the word out that parishioners do have rights. They can um, appeal these decrees. Um, and in one case, um, for some parishes north of Sydney, they did appeal a merger. They took it to the Vatican and they won kind of a stay. So the Vatican is going to consider their appeal and the mergers put on hold until the Vatican makes a decision. Because according to canon law, there's only certain reasons why the archdiocese can merge a parish or close a church. It's not just for any reason. There are actually are very clear reasons. Um, so which was another really fascinating thing that we found out in our research as well. Well, what are these certain reasons that they're allowed to close a parish? Well, I, I do know that some of the reasons that you can't close a church include a shortage of priests and a, uh, a, a, an attempt to, uh, to uh, relieve uh, priest fatigue. So, um, you know, that's one of the surprising things is that um, the archdiocese at the beginning uh, said this was due to a declining membership, uh, half-empty uh, churches, and a shortage of priests. And it turns out a shortage of priests is not a just cause reason for closing closing a church. Um, I think what what is uh, supposed to be done is that parishes are uh, supposed to get together in these in these parish families and then collectively make a decision about what resources are best to use to um, to run this new parish family. That's what the archdiocese lays out in its uh, beacons of light uh, material. Lots of material on the website about how this process is supposed to work. Uh, but what we found from parishioners and certainly the, the local parishioners who have been involved in school closures, um, they don't know what the criteria was that was used to uh, to decide to close their school. And when they find out about it and when it's made public in a press release or in a letter to parishioners by a pastor, uh, oftentimes they find that the statements are not accurate and they, they disagree uh, not only with the conclusions, but the facts used to justify it. Now, wasn't there some talk that some of these schools that have closed or some of the churches have been serving diverse populations? Yes, um, we, we looked at um, the census tracts where these where all of the archdiocese uh, schools are located and we found that um, that three of the four schools that have been closed so far are in diverse neighborhoods with a higher than state average poverty rate. Now, the archdiocese says those demographic factors are not uh, factors in closures, um, but the, the student population in three of these uh, churches is also very diverse, you know, compared to the rest of the archdiocese. 
Well, what does the archdiocese have to say about all of this? Have you talked well, to them? I mean, they say they say they're uh, involving parishioners uh, in the best way they can. They they've got a website that's been viewed, uh, I think they said a million times, and they, I mean, you just go on the website and there is a lot of material on beacons of light. Um, it, it's the material that's missing that I think uh, is causing some of these parishioners to say there's a lack of transparency. Nobody knew that we talked. We talked to 17 uh, parishioners for this story. None of them knew that you were able to appeal a uh, an archdiocese decree. Um, most of the parishioners we talked to said they had no idea their school was uh, about to close. And once it was announced, they took issue with the facts used to justify it. So have you re I'm sorry, Paula, go ahead. Well, that's okay. I think there's also a disconnect. Um, a lot of the parishioners we spoke with, you know, in theory, the archdiocese says these decisions are supposed to be made from the bottom up, meaning by parish councils and by parishioners and pastors. And the parishioners we spoke with are saying that, okay, yes, in theory, that might be true, but that's not really what's happening. A lot of longtime pastors are getting replaced with pastors who are more pro beacons of light and less willing to question um, the what the archdiocese would like to see happen. They say that parish parish councils are not really free thinking bodies that represent the will of parishioners that pastors are only choosing people on the parish council that will support the beacons of light initiative and not people that are willing to question it so it's not really if you listen to the parishioners we spoke with as transparent and seemingly democratic as the archdiocese would like it to seem now, have you reached out to the Archdiocese for your story? We did. We we requested interviews. Uh, we submitted questions. They gave us uh, written answers to uh, to many of those questions. Um, you know, I, I I should point out too that the ch the church I think views uh, the Beacons Light of Light initiative uh, not only in the context of uh, we have too few priests and not enough money to run all these churches. Um, I think they argue in a lot of their materials, and they certainly did uh, in, in their answers, that Beacons of Light is about uh, fostering a new kind of parish, uh, one that um, makes the most of the resources they have uh, to have more of an evangelizing effect uh, on their uh, parishioners and really to, um, to uh, I guess, reinvent uh, the faith and, uh, you know, I think their goal, as they articulated on their website, is to use this process to sort of reinvigorate parishes by, by getting rid of the, uh, uh, the resources that inhibit, uh, you know, that kind of uh, uh, spiritual growth. And that could mean, you know, instead of practicing in three churches, you practice in one. Uh, it could mean merging organizations that do the same thing uh, in different parishes, like St. Vincent de Paul societies, for example. Uh, it could mean merging youth organizations. 
and not having five different parishes with five different youth organizations. And so, you know, I, I think the purpose of Beacons of Light in the eyes of the archdiocese is, is to uh, kind of reinvent the faith, not necessarily downsize uh, the church. No, what's happening is I think the archdiocese has perhaps underestimated the attachment that people have to their individual parish, where maybe their grandparents were baptized and married and their parents and them and their children, this deep historic neighborhood faith-based connection that they don't want to see their parish merged. They don't want to see their church potentially closed. And they're not really willing to just go to another church. You know, I spoke to several parishioners from St. Margaret, St. John, which in is in Madisonville, which um, that church closed a few years ago, and it's now the property's up for sale. And some of them did, in fact, go to, you know, neighboring churches, but some aren't going to church at all because they felt uh, they're still a little bit upset about the closure of their church, and they just are kind of turned off. You know, we did get a question from a listener I wanted to um, to ask about. Um, it's whether that based on what the numbers are showing, religious participation is down, you know, throughout the country. Um, so what is the, they're asking, what is the diocese supposed to do? What would parishioners like them to do instead of closing parishes? Well, Mark Pettis had a pretty good answer to that. He said the supreme law of the church is the salvation of souls, and he doesn't see how closing a church saves any souls. So um, what these parishioners, uh, the advocates for these parishioners are suggesting is that the archdiocese work with parishioners to keep churches and parishes alive. Um, Certainly in northern Ohio, Pettis argues that the churches are not empty, they're full on weekends, and um, he doesn't see a need to downsize any church in northern Ohio. For the parishes that are um, suffering with uh, membership um, or schools suffering with membership, you know, the the folks from St. Martin said, "Give give us a goal, give us an action plan. What do you need to keep this school open? Uh, we'll raise the money. Um, and that was that has been missing in a lot of these uh, conversations. The parishioners feel like uh, they don't know about the decision until after it's made and they have no chance to reverse a decision once it's announced. One more. And, oh, go ahead. Oh, Paula. sorry. Could I just jump sure. in? And what and also the folks from um, the Save Our Steeples organization, um, Chris and Becky Kneekamp, um, they in Northern Ohio, again, they said that they'd be fine to for several years to work uh, with fewer priests um, and to have fewer masses, but to keep each church open and maybe just rotate. So instead of, um, you know, so every church gets a mass instead of once a week, maybe it's every other week or every third week um, that they would be OK with with doing whatever it took with less to keep the churches open. Now, very quickly, if people want to find out more about the appeals process, how can they do that? Well, we have the we have two stories on this topic. The second story is all about how to appeal. And uh, that uh, story includes an email uh, to uh, Mark Pettis, the procurator for the entire uh, archdiocese. And there, there's a pretty 
regimented system for how you're supposed to go about this. And um, if you go on their website, uh, Save Our Parishes, you can find your way to a, um, a parish packet that includes a lot of information about uh, what kinds of uh, financial documents you should try to collect. If you're worried about your parish closing, uh, Pettis and others advise that you should uh, gather information about how your parishes are operating within the parish family, um, because once you uh, once a, a decree is announced or a parish merger is uh, is uh, approved by the chancery, you only have ten days to appeal that decision. So if you it, it pays to be ready in advance. So what they're advising is that parishioners collect a lot of this information not only financial information, but how many baptisms are done at your church and, and the others in, in your family, how many marriages, how many um, other sacraments are celebrated there. Uh, get as much information as you can about the vitality of your own parish and those in your family uh, so that when a decree is announced, um, you can match that against uh, you know the details that the, the, the uh, decree mentions. I want to thank you both for being here today. We are going to put a link on our website to the information you're talking about. So if anyone is interested in that uh, appeals process, they can look for it there. I really appreciate you both Appreciate you both uh, taking the time today to record this interview. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. I've been joined by WCPO I-Team reporters Paula Christian and Dan Monk. This is Cincinnati Edition. This is Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU. I'm Marianne Zalesnik filling in for Lucy May. Long before smartphones made finding out the time or temperature as easy as glancing at your screen, you could pick up your landline and call and get the time and the temperature. WVXU reporter and senior editor Tana Weingartner spoke with one of the voices behind those calls. She's with me now in this recorded interview. Hey, Tana. Hi. So this is really interesting. I remember when you pitched this in a news (laughs) meeting and we're like, you what? Um, so I do. I, I called. I lived in northern Ohio. I think I called some three-digit number, but to get the time and yeah. temperature all the time. Um, and it was a big deal when you were little because you could tell your mom, it is 32 <laughs> degrees. And you felt very important. Um, and but, you were allowed to use the phone. And I was allowed to use the phone. <laughs> so, so talk a little bit about how this story materialized, why you decided to do it. So I was on Reddit. I just kind of lurk on Reddit. um, And someone had posted that these numbers still work. And I was like, yeah, of course they do. You know, I still call them. And I sort of thought to myself, like, well, that's sort of silly. Why do I still call them? Um, But I do. And it's just kind of, I don't know, nostalgic or something. Um, But yeah, they totally still work. So when I saw that post on Reddit, I was like, yeah, they totally are there. So, so they are, and you decided to find out. Yeah, why. but I want to exactly. I was like, so, but why? Because I mean, I don't really need to call the phone number. I have it right here, you know, in front of me. I can figure out the time, the temp, the weather, whatever, um, just by glancing at my smartphone. But I thought, so they must still exist for some reason, and um, presumably people are calling them. And so, who are these people that are calling them? And then I called the one, and there was a real person recording the weather. I thought, well, who's he? So, well, this is the part that where it really starts to get interesting. And, yeah. and I can say this because in our news meetings, we have news meetings every day. Um, Tana would update us on how the progress was going <laughs> on this time and temperature story because we all thought, oh, that's interesting. Go ahead and do that. And then a week would go by and we'd be like, so about that time and temperature story. <laughs> I think for a while, Marianne thought I wasn't actually working on it. It took me 
forever to find the person who records the weather forecast for cities in Ohio. Um, so do you want me to, I can just sort of tell the story real Give fast. Give us a so, TikTok. Like, yeah. <laughs> so um, I like tried to track it down. I tried to Google it. Um, wasn't really getting anywhere. So I went to our engineer here, Don Danko, and I said, hey, do you know? And he said, I don't, but let me call one of the, some of the engineers at some of the TV stations here. So we found out, I think from Channel 19, from Fox 19, an engineer there, that Pat Berry, you know, the former meteorologist, a forecaster here in Cincinnati, at one point had 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 owned the phone number here and since the 2411010. But, you know, of course, Pat Berry is deceased. So eventually I got to a guy named Randy Michaels, who used to be real big in the iHeart world. And Randy got me to a person named Bina, uh, Bina Roy, I think, who knew Pat. And they, she said, and this has taken a month, right? Like this has been a month just to find all this information, said those numbers were sold to a company called Telecompute Corporation. So I Googled that and I'm still getting. So I just reached out. Finally, there was like a contact us form, which I figured I would never hear back from. And the very next day, a woman named Lauren Bruce in Virginia called me and said, hi, I hear you're trying to find the weather line guy. So it was a miracle at that point. I mean, yeah. I think you got a, a response during one of our meetings, if I remember. Yes, I actually that, yelled. So in the yeah, his name, the guy who records these forecasts is named Keith Allen, and he called in the middle of one of our news meetings. He was so excited to talk to I was super excited to hear from him. He was excited to talk to us, too. So he is where? He is based in Washington, D.C. He just does this as a labor of love. He is not making big money at all, like practically nothing. Um, but he just loves the forecasting. He got the bug from Willard Scott when Willard Scott was still just like an up-and-coming person. Uh, he met him. He, he met him, like, yeah. watch him on he, TV and no, say, oh, wow. He, he got to meet him because he lived there in the D.C. area. And um, it just like it spiraled from there. He was a weather junkie, and he now he records forecasts in some twenty cities every morning. At, all well, day long. multiple times a day. Like if the weather is bad, he does Buffalo, for example, oh, and gosh. Cleveland. You know, they get that lake effect snow there. Um, so he might update the forecast in those cities multiple times a day. He told me he has never taken a vacation. He never. He has some people that work for him, um, you know, to cover some of those other cities, but he doesn't take breaks. That. That's just amazing. <laughs> so now here's the other part I want to find out, though. You talk to some people. Why do people call the number when they're holding their phones <laughs> that tell them the time, the temperature, the weather forecast? Yeah, exactly. We had um, somebody I know on our Facebook page when we posted that who said, I actually like do this all the time. While uh, they're holding while their phone. While they're holding their phone. <laughs> uh, Stunning to me. Yeah. It's, so they, it's just interesting. You know, it's nostalgia. The, um, the National Weather Service has a f- bunch of phone lines. They said they get a lot of calls from the Amish community because, um, you know, they don't have phones in their homes. They do have these like communal call boxes down the street, you know, or down the lane that they can use. Um, travel people, what are those called? Travel agents will call a lot to get forecasts. Um, hot air balloon companies that need to know the weather speed right away, they will call a lot. Wind um, speed. Wind speed. Wind speed. What did mm-hmm. I say? Weather I speed. Oh, <laughs> yeah, we have fast speed. weather around here. <laughs> um, yeah. So a lot of people are using them, surprisingly. Well, that's just something. I mean, <laughs> I, I, like I said, I used to call. I have not called in decades. You're going to call later today. Probably I I will. Probably (laughs) I will. Well, the next interesting part about all of this is we had this story on our air uh, earlier this week. And the next thing we know, I get an email from a producer at NPR who is all excited <laughs> about this story and says, hey, will Tana do that for NPR? So you're so doing that's that. happening. I don't know when it's coming. Um, we're going to edit and uh, this week and we'll see. So that's it's really exciting. So people really are interested in it. I think it's just because it drives home. It's something that a lot of people 
remember and can connect with and it's not like a bad memory right it's kind of just like an interesting thing from your childhood well, people like retro right so yeah. this is definitely retro get your forecast <laughs> on the phone tana thanks so much for being here it's been oh, great you're welcome tana weingartner is wvxu's reporter and senior editor you've been listening to cincinnati edition on 91.7 wvxu our producer is selena reader associate producer asia johnson technical director marshall verbsky i'm marianne zelesnik filling in for lucy may Thanks so much for listening.